Hey guys, so I'm really, really glad you're joining us again this week and we're kind of picking up our series, uh, third week series called Life Together. It comes right out of one of our values here at Grace Church. We've shared this with you before, but we share life together. And the value goes like this, we cannot live without honest relationships. We're resolved to figure out how to love God, love each other, and live on mission together. And so that's why we're doing this series called Life Together. And that's our value. And that sounds great. And the idea of life together sounds great. But if we're honest, a lot of us, we feel a lot like Linus, who came to Lucy. And he says to her, are you a doctor? Hi. He said, that's a, that's a big laugh. Uh, you could never be a doctor, she says. You know why? <laughs> Because you don't love mankind, that's why. And Linus says what some of you are thinking. He says this, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. <laughs> some of you are thinking right now, man, this idea of life together is a great idea. Share life together if it wasn't for the people. Eight billion people trying to figure out how to share life together on the same planet. Doesn't seem like it's working so well all the time, right? Or 335 million people in the same country trying to figure out how to share life together. Doesn't always seem to work like we want it to work. And some of you are like, forget eight billion people on the same planet, 335 million in the same country. You have a handful of people in the same family trying to figure out how to share life together. And you're like, man, we can't get it figured out. That's why... That's why for the last couple weeks and for the next couple weeks, we are in Romans 12 because Romans 12 is a passage that's like the hinge of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul does this deep dive into the gospel and he says, everything, all of this theology, this teaching about the story of Jesus, the hinge, Romans 12, has an implication. That's why he says this, therefore, you see it there? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything we said, chapters 1 through 11, and, and theology is leading to an implication or a practice. He says, I want you, in view of all that, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, set apart, pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Then he says this, don't conform to the pattern of this world. We said it the first week, don't keep going down the well-worn path of this world, the way the world wants to do relationships. You'll keep hitting a garage. You'll, you'll eventually run into a garage. If you weren't here first week, go check that out. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will we kind of summed it up this way, that his body, the gospel is his body, was sacrificed for our sin. So that when we say yes to Jesus, our bodies could become a living sacrifice. That together make up the body of Christ here on earth. That, that's the point. That together make up the body of Christ here on earth. That we belong to each other. That's what Aiden taught us last week. That, that, that there is a beautiful unity in our diversity. That we aren't meant to be the same. And we each have different gifts and functions, but they come together. The, the focus isn't on, what is my gift? The focus is on how do I serve the body for the common good. And so his body, given as a sacrifice for our sins, so our bodies could be a living sacrifice that together make up his body here on earth. Now, here's what's going to happen today. 
You got your Bibles open to Romans 12, I hope. And Paul's going to get on a roll because in the next 13 verses, he's going to give about 30 commands. <laughs> about 30 commands. Now, here's what you're going to be tempted to do. You're going to be tempted to read this with me as a to-do list. And if you read it apart from Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's going to feel like a to-do list and you're going to misapply it. Because good theology leads to good practice. Practice without good theology is malpractice. And so what he's saying in view of God's mercy, here's the commands. That this is what a community shaped by the gospel, this is what a community transformed by the mercies of God looks like. And he starts off by saying this, after this whole list of gifts and all the different functions and the ways that God gifts the body, he says, love in the community that makes up the body of Christ. Love must be sincere, NIV. ESV says, love, let love be genuine. Let it be real, not fake. <laughs> it makes me think when I was a kid, if you'd asked me as a kid, did I love seafood? I said, I love seafood. How many seafood lovers out there? When I was a kid, I would have told you, if you asked me, I love seafood. The reason I would have told you I love seafood is because the school that I went to, every week or other week, every other week, something like that, they would serve up this seafood delicacy. Honestly. Yeah, it was this seafood delicacy that was minced fish parts wrapped in this breaded gluten goodness that we as kids just smothered in ketchup. You recognize that? Man, we used to have fish stick Friday. <laughs> we used to love, I, I loved seafood, fish stick Friday. I, I didn't know what was in it. I just knew it was fish sticks. That's what they called it. But when you read the box, it's like these minced up fish parts just wrapped in this breaded gluten goodness. And then what we did is we just, we just smothered it in ketchup. And man, I loved it. Man, every once in a while, and my mom would even, I would even kind of go even further. She'd make me a tuna fish salad sandwich from tuna in a can. I thought, man, I am a seafood connoisseur, right? I have a palate that is that, that loves seafood. I thought, I am a seafood lover. And if you had asked me as a kid, I said, sure I am. I love Fish Stick Friday. That is until somebody, for the first time, took me to a real seafood restaurant. You ever been to one? where I got introduced to things like walleye, grilled salmon, perch. I got introduced to things like shrimp and lobster. Somebody else was paying that day. I got introduced to tuna steak. Like I got introduced to a whole new realm of seafood, real seafood, real fish. And can I just tell you something? That when I all of a sudden had a taste for real seafood, I no longer had a hankering for fish sticks. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying this, that when the gospel invades our church, invades our community, the body of believers, there's no more fake love. There's no appetite for fake love. The truth is this. You and I are so used to the minced pieces of what our world calls love, kind of covered in some good feelings, smothered with superficiality, that we don't really know what real love looks like, tastes like, feels like. We don't always know what its experience is. 
We live in, in this culture that has this minced pieces all wrapped together in a Hallmark movie where the plot's always the same, right? Is she going to choose the, the, the city slicker dude or the, the, the guy in the flannel shirt with the one-liners who somehow is related to Santa Claus, right? <laughs> like, like when we think about love in our culture, we like, we use love for everything. I love my wife and I love football and I love ice cream. I mean, love, just kind of roll it all together. Uh, we, we, we fall into love, we fall out of love. Paul says the gospel, when it shows up in the body who make up his body, the body of Christ, it's different. It's real, it's not fake, it's sincere, it's genuine, it's not a fake me out love, it's not a love that's conformed to the pattern of this world, smothered with all kind of feel good thoughts. Here's what he's saying. He's saying love must be sincere. Love must be genuine. Write this down. Genuine love runs counter to the pattern of this world. It is not conformed to the well-worn pattern of this world. This pattern of our world, this well-worn path of isolationism, individualism. Uh, as Aiden talked about last week, this, this back deck mentality that has given up on a front porch mentality. It runs against the, the well-worn pattern of a world that's lost its empathy and, and, and even our ability to have a conversation. I was listening to a guy talk this week. He took a, a college course on interpersonal communication. He said it was online. <laughs> like that's where we're at, right? This inability to have even a conversation, particularly with people we disagree with. Uh, it, it runs counter to this well-worn path of our world where everything is instant gratification, instant information. It, well, it, it runs against the pattern of this world where we have a pattern of rage and cynicism, a culture of contempt. He says genuine love is not conformed to the pattern of this world, but genuine love is transforming. It's a transforming response to God's love for us. I want you to see this, that when he says love must be sincere, let love be genuine, he's using a word for love, agape. Agape. As far as I can tell, in the book of Romans, <clears throat> this is the first time Paul uses the word agape to refer to our love for each other in the body of Christ. Up until this time, <clears throat> the word agape is always attributed to God's love for us. That tells me something. That the kind of love that's sincere and genuine that he's talking about is not mustered up, is not I'm going to just love better, but it is a tr response that transforms me and it's responding to God's love for me. That's what worship is. And then it's the ultimate demonstration to our world that we're followers of Jesus and it points them to Jesus. It is the ultimate way in which we shine lights bright on Jesus. John 13, Jesus said, this is how the world's gonna know you're my followers by your love for each other. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, that you can have all the gifts in the world. You can be the most gifted person in the church, but if you don't have love, you're like a clanging gong. Jesus, when he was backed into a corner. They said, what's the most important command for us to follow? He said, let me sum up all the law and prophets with this. Love God, love others. And 1 John chapter 4 says this, if we say we love God, don't love others, each other, he says, we basically are a liar. 
It's a big deal. It is the ultimate demonstration to our world. And he simply says this, that love, love must be sincere. Love must be genuine. That word genuine or sincere is the word in Greek that means this, anu pokritos, anu pokritos. It means this, without hypocrisy. That's what the word means. Genuine, sincere is translating the word anu pokritos. You can forget that. It means without hypocrisy. And that, that idea of hypocrisy came from their culture first, where they would have worn, the, the people in the theater would have wore a mask, smile. They would have wore a mask, frown, to kind of tell the different, it's like, I'm going to wear a mask. And he says, love that is responding to God's love does away with the mask. It's not hypocritical. Churches, ready? Churches, I'm not picking on, but can be the worst fake me out places in the world. Can be the worst places in the world where people just fake it till they make it, right? And he says, that's not love. That's genuine and sincere. Hypocrisy, I don't know if you thought about this or not, but hypocrisy shows up in two ways. First is this, I think I can make a case for this. Book of Matthew, Jesus talks about this. Hypocrisy is when I make my outside look better than what is really inside. So it's about me somehow making me outside look different and better, inconsistent with what's on the inside. Churches can be the worst of this, right? You drive to church and you yell at the kids, yell at your wife, you know, and you open the door like, good morning. <laughs> and you kind of walk around and say, hey, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm highly blessed, highly favored. Well, then why in the world is your Facebook post such a dumpster fire, right? Yeah. I mean, churches can be the worst of this. Somehow I make outside look different, inconsistent with what really is going on on the inside. But there's a second form of hypocrisy, and that's this. Hypocrisy is when I somehow make you look bad, point out and accentuate what's bad in you, so somehow to distract from what's wrong with me. Churches become hotbeds for condemning others, yelling at others, right? While the whole time, their deep, deep, deep sin grows in secret. You see, what a sincere, what is a sincere and genuine love that doesn't fake it till you make it look like? That's what Paul's going to spend time talking about. It's a love that doesn't fake it till you make it, but it's a love that's sincere, it's genuine, it's not a fake me out love. It's without hypocrisy. It does away with the mass. Now, the way the New Living Translation puts it is this, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. What's it look like? Well, he's going to say some things I think are surprising. If you're taking notes, it's just, we're just going to go through phrase by phrase, he said that kind of love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. He said love, first and foremost, hates. That word for, for hates is maybe in your version it says abhors. I think it's the only time it's used in the, the New Testament. It's like this, this vehement hatred towards something. And he said it, it abhors evil and it clings to what's good. Let me tell you two things you got to see here before we move on. First is this. He says that love hates what is evil, not who is evil. 
He said, love hates what is evil, not who is evil. And if I read this right, there's a second observation that I got to make. No notes for this, but there's a second observation, and that's this. That if love hates what is evil, that tells me there is an evil. There is an objective evil, and there is an objective good, and that is determined outside of me. He doesn't say evil is what I hate, and good are the things that I cling to. That is moralistic relativism. That's the soup we're swimming in. Well, if I hate it, it must be evil. If I cling to it, it must be good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to hate what God says is evil because what God says is evil is evil for you. And he said, I want you to cling to what God says is good because God says it's good and therefore it's good for you. And he's saying that a love that's not hypocritical or fake hates evil but clings to what's good. And when I don't, I'm pretending to love or I'm loving in a fake me out way. That shows up in several ways. Can I just point out too? First is this. Fake love yells at evil people while hiding the evil in my own life. I have, I don't know, I found in my experience the people who yell the loudest at evil people, those evil people, those people are probably those who have not hated the evil in their own life yet. I really, that's what I found. People who yell at people to get right with God. People who, maybe maybe you grew up in a church where they're afraid of those churches who are soft on sin. So we just yell at those evil people. Yell at culture. Yell at the, right? Because there's, there's churches that are soft on sin. I have found those kind of people usually are people who are soft on sin in their own life. And therefore, they're not right with God. Let me tell you something. I will not be right with God till I hate what is evil in me. And when I hate what's evil in me, it's going to cause me to cling to what's good in the cross. And that the cross is where the only good one, Jesus, died for all that's evil. You see, that's the gospel. That's why you've heard the old song. Have you ever heard this old song? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. I love that old cross for the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So listen to what he says. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will, what? Cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. That is why a community that is powered and shaped by the mercies of God will humbly acknowledge and deal with their own evil in their own life and cling to the cross. But there is a second reality, and that's this, is that fake love tolerates evil in others because it clings to what is comfortable for me. I think it's a hard one, guys. Here's the way this plays out. When I or you or we see someone who is part of the body of Christ, part of the community of believers doing something that we know we know is wrong, something that is not in line with God's desire, God's will, but it sure seems to be making them happy. Many times we don't want to say anything, do we? The reason that we don't want to say anything is because two reasons. They'll be upset and I'll be uncomfortable. 
You and I both know that a sign of love is that we're willing, right? We're willing to protect people. That a fake me out kind of love is not willing to step in where it's uncomfortable. Paul is saying when I love someone as a brother or sister, I love them enough to be horrified by evil, not them horrified by evil. And when I will not tell someone the truth, what is motivating me is not love for them, but it's love for my own comfort. If you're a parent, you know this. Parents, you know this. How comfortable is it? How, how, how fun is it when you gotta discipline your kids? It would just be easier, right? Yet you and I both know that parents who will not discipline their kids because they don't want to upset them end up letting them continue down a ruinous, ruinous path. You see, here's what I believe one of the greatest evils of the church is tolerating evil. Sincere and genuine love is not hypocritical but instead it hates what is evil and it clings to what is good. Paul goes on, he says, it not only hates what is evil and clings to what's good, but he says, be devoted to one another in love. ESV says, love one another with brotherly affection. This is a weird word combination. He basically says the word Philadelphia, which you've heard that before, the city of brotherly love, this affection for each other. And then he uses another word, which is where we get uh, the, the phrase, be devoted to one another in love. And that word is the word, I think it's the only time it's used in the New Testament, philostorges. It's this combination of love where storges is this family kind of love. In a nutshell, what Paul is saying and what I want you to see is he's be devoted to loving each other. You ready? like a healthy family. Now, I already know some of you don't have a healthy family. I already know that. And so what you need is a picture of a family that's pursuing health and loving each other. But he says, in the body of Christ, a love that is genuine loves like a family. What does that look like? Get your pens ready. Just write a couple things down. I, this is not an extensive list or even an exclusive list, but it's a list. I think it involves rugged commitment. I think Aiden alluded to this last week that we belong to each other, that in a family there's a commitment to each other, that your siblings may annoy you, but you defend them. Like I can, I can remember, I, I honestly can remember that when, when my kids were growing up, I got two boys and a daughter. Like they would get on each other's nerves, but you dare not say something about the other because they're going to defend. Like there's this rugged commitment like, like, there's a rugged commitment in, in a family that when your parents get old, and you know, I hope things go well, like you arrange your life around somehow taking care of them. That when your kid gets in trouble and the principal calls you from school, you don't say, hey man, you know, we just had enough. I think we're gonna have to find a different solution. Maybe you can send him somewhere else. Like, no, there's this rugged commitment. This commitment that... That, that desires to love through thick and thin. If we're honest, if we're honest, sometimes our commitment to the church is more like a fan than a family. Honestly. 
Like, you know how you are with, with, with your favorite sports team? You start off the year and you're like, boom, we're so excited, so fired up, right? Everything's going to be great. We, we paint our face, we, we clap, we yell, we cheer, and then the season gets going, and they maybe don't do as well. Maybe the coach doesn't call the plays quite like we'd like. The players don't play quite up to par. They don't win as many games as we want, and all of a sudden, our excitement begins to wane. All of a sudden, we stop showing up. All of a sudden, we instead of being committed, we start complaining. All of a sudden, right? We become what? Fair weather fans instead of ruggedly committed family. I think what he's saying here is, I want you to be devoted, committed, this rugged commitment. And that rugged commitment involves a consistent presence. I think that's why Hebrews 10.25 says, don't give up the habit of meeting together. Don't give up the habit of meeting together. Family shows up. And when family shows up, significant things happen. It happens in your family, it happens in my family. Family shows up. There's this consistent presence. When you're in a family, you show up to dinner not because of what's on the menu. You show up because that's where the family gets together. And there's some nights you have fish sticks right? But there's some nights like, wow, that's incredible. I think the same thing in the body. We show up. Oh, how was the service today? Good, music good. I don't know. They kind of hit some bad notes. How was the preacher? Kind of rough today. I don't know. I don't know who's preaching today and how this. We don't show up because of what's on the menu. We show up because we're family. So there's this rugged commitment that's devoted through thick and thin. There's this consistent presence. I actually think, and some of you are watching this in different places and whatever, and, and maybe right now you don't have a church home. And I love the fact you're watching online. I really do. But, but this consistent presence and this rugged commitment, I pray that you'll look for a family, a body that you can connect to that you can be ruggedly committed to, that you can be consistently present in. I think a, a family has this authentic empathy. A little later in Romans 12, you see, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn or weep with those who weep. He says there's this authentic, this empathy that we have that when, when one of the members is mourning, we mourn. Which of those do you think is harder, by the way? Rejoicing with those who rejoice or mourning with those who mourn. It's not what you think. I think it's way easier for us to feel the pain with those who are in pain, to mourn with those who have experienced loss. You know what I think is hard in a family? To be genuinely happy for people who succeed. To rejoice with people who are rejoicing. Why? Because envy and jealousy begin to take over. He says a love that's not a fake-me-out kind of love rejoices, like is genuinely happy when things are going well and others are rejoicing. Genuinely will get down in the sorrow and mourn with those who mourn. And then I think there's this developing affection. Uh, I, I think it's the flavor of the word, actually. I prayed, I don't know how you are, but as my kids, my kids are grown and gone now, but I prayed as my kids got older that they would be friends with each other. There were plenty of days as in my house, and I'm like, I just don't, I just don't want them to kill each other. 
But I would pray, my wife would pray this, like we prayed that they would grow up to be friends with each other. I think it's the flavor of these words that, listen, affection grows up as rugged commitment shows up. And then all of a sudden, as you're ruggedly committed to a group of people, to relationships, it's not like they're always going to be fun to be committed to. But you know what the problem is? The problem is that what Aiden taught us last week, we don't have a sober judgment of ourselves. I'm not always fun to be committed to. Sometimes we can think, oh, I'm a piece of cake to love. I'm a piece of cake to feel affection for. That's not always the case. And I think what happens is this affection has to grow up in me. But the only way it's going to grow up in me is I show up with a rugged commitment. Sake of time, can we move on? I think he says a couple more things. He says, honor one another above yourselves. Woo-hoo. That word honor, by the way, the Greek word, we, we did a whole series on this, is to value, respect. To, 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 to honor and hold in high esteem. You want to talk about something that directly runs in a way that's not conformed to the pattern of this world. Here it is. Honor one another above yourselves. This runs counter to our world. It runs counter to our selfie culture. <laughs> we get the privilege of going down in history as the culture that invented the selfie. It's fascinating, right? I run into people all the time. They're like, you know, like you go somewhere and like people are doing this and like, what's the best shot? You look at people's Facebook page, you look at their whatever social media and there's pictures of them all over. You're like, I wonder who took that. Well, they did, <laughs> right? The selfie culture and whether we admit it or not, when there's a group picture, we're consumed with finding ourselves in the picture. And what he's saying here is to honor others is to think about them above and before me. To honor others takes a measure of, write this word down, self-forgetfulness. And when I begin to understand self-forgetfulness, I begin to experience freedom. Let me tell you a book. I want you to get it. I want you to read it. It's like three or four chapters long. It's worth the read. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. This is what he says. Gospel humility is blessed self-forgetfulness. Not thinking less of myself as in modern cultures or less of myself as in traditional cultures. Here's what he says. Simply thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does this make me look good? Do I want to be here? But true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stopped thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings, the thing we remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. That's what it means to honor others above ourselves. Totally interested in them. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less and honoring others. I I really do believe this. I, I, I like to observe what happens in culture. One of the ways that this shows up is when I enter into a conversation, am I always 
somehow weaving it back to me and my experience. Somebody tells me they're sick, and I'm like, oh, well, that's nothing I had, right? When I was sick, man, I, you know, am I able to ask good questions that somehow open doors and then listen? You see, this honoring others above ourselves runs counter to our selfie culture. And not only that, but it runs counter to our contempt culture. In a world where the pattern is cynicism and contempt, here's what he says. That love that isn't a fake-me-out love, but is a responding to the mercies of God love is not hypocritical, and it honors others above itself. In fact, the English Standard Version, ESV, says this. Write this down somewhere. It says, here's what I want you to do. Outdo one another in showing honor. It has a competitive flair. He says, hey, you know something? Let's compete. Let's outdo one another in honoring others. It has a competitive flavor to it. Can we be honest? This is just the opposite of the well-worn path of this world where instead of competing to out-honor each other, here's what happens. We do the opposite because the moment we feel dishonored, the moment we feel threatened, what do we do? What is our response? We try to out-dishonor the person who's dishonoring us. You know why? Write this down somewhere. When I am empty inside... I feel like I'm in competition with you, not for you. You see, here's the deal. He's saying be in a competition for others, to honor them, whether they deserve it or not. How will I do that? What will power me to do that? The mercies of God, a God who left his seat of honor, Jesus, Philippians 2, so that right, so that he could leverage his entire life for what I needed. See, it runs counter to our contempt culture. I would say this, it runs counter to our celebrity culture. We live in a culture that's enthralled with celebrities. We are addicted to stories about their life. We're curious to see how they spend their time. You ever been in a, uh, you ever been somewhere and a celebrity walks in? What happens? Everybody starts whispering, hey, do you see who that is? Everybody starts gawking. People start posturing. People begin to grab their cameras and start flashing pictures. Everybody begins to look at the celebrity, the star who just walked into the room. I think, I think what Paul might be saying is this. What if, what if that's what Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or whenever we gather... What if that's what your small group looked like? What if when the single mom who sits three seats over from you in church walked in and you're like, hey, did you see who just walked in? What if the young kid who just ran down, hey, did you see that? What if all of a sudden in the community of believers, honor wasn't based on our societal status but it was based on the value assigned by God to each human being. In fact, in the body of Christ, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, I can't say I don't need you to the hand. Head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, listen to this, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, they're indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with what? Special honor. 
The parts that are unpresentable, special modesty. While our presentable parts, no special treatment needed. But God has put the body together, giving honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division. There are no superstars and not superstars. But there is the body. And there is equal concern for each other. You know, one more thing I, th I think it runs counter to. I think it runs counter to our siloed culture. It's easy in our siloed culture to silo our lives to be with the people who are like us. We gravitate towards affinity groups. It's easy for us to honor people who are like us and to dishonor, even if that means to ignore, people who are not like us. To only hang out with people in our age bracket, people in our race, people in our socioeconomic bracket, people who do jobs like us, people who have the same interest as us. So it becomes so easy for us to just honor those people by paying attention to them and ignore others. And I think what honor does is it crosses generational boundaries. I always get nervous when I see teenagers, young adults, and the only people they ever hang out with are teenagers and young adults. If you're a 20-some-year-old listening as you're part of the body of Christ, and all you hang out with is other 20-some-year-olds, you're missing this beautiful opportunity to honor those in a whole different generation who have a whole wealth of wisdom to invest in you. I get nervous when I see older people only hanging out with older people. Never, ever spending time with 20-some-year-olds. I, I, I get nervous when, when, when we don't see honor crossing generational boundaries. It crosses gender boundaries. Men honoring women. In fact, husbands, 1 Peter 3 says, honor, respect your wife so that your prayers aren't hindered. Women respecting and honoring men. Gals, can I just say something? The way to deal with the dishonor that some men have had towards women is not to dishonor men in general. But it's this, this idea of wanting to honor those who God values. It crosses racial boundaries. It crosses socioeconomic boundaries. Honor one another. Let's outdo each other. On this Mother's Day, let's outdo each other. Thank you, moms. We honor you. Then he says this, and then he says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal, ESV says, but be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. I love that. He said, don't be a sloth. Don't lose your passion. Don't be lazy and don't be apathetic. That's what he's saying in a nutshell. He's saying don't be lazy and simply a consumer and keep the fire of your passion. The word that he uses is literally boiling over. He's saying that a genuine transforming love that's transformed by the mercies of God is the antidote to two things that are common in many people's Christian experience. The first is this. Going through the motions of serving with no spiritual passion. There's no fire. Some of you know that. These are people who every week do the same thing. They're, they're, they're serving, they're consistent, but there is no spiritual enthusiasm. There is no fire. It's all about duty. There is no delight. 
But then there's another thing that I think a lot of people struggle with, and that's looking for an emotional experience with no motion towards serving. People whose spiritual experience is like a roller coaster that goes from one conference to another, one emotional experience to another. You hear your favorite song, you get the spiritual quiver in your liver, then you walk out the door into the reality of your life, and it's up and it's down. What is the antidote to both of these? It's in here. For those of you who would say, I serve, I'm consistent, but I got no spiritual passion, the anecdote is in this last sentence. He said, serving, you're like, I got that part down, the Lord. That if I've lost my passion, I somehow have served apart from viewing the mercies of God on my life. That anything I do in service to God is an act of worship for all that he's done for me. That's what he's saying. And a love that's genuine, loves in response, serves as an act of worship for all the love that's been expressed and demonstrated from God to me. And for those of you who are just like, I just raise my hands in worship and I'm all about spiritual fervor, but it's like a roller coaster. The anecdote is here. I gotta start serving. I gotta somehow get on the front line I got to quit substituting an emotional experience for long obedience in the same direction. You see, in our culture, we have substituted passion in the place of perseverance. And we serve a Savior who, the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scoring the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Paul says, love is genuine and sincere. Hates what's evil, clings to what's good. He's devoted to one another, just like a family. That this love that is sincere is a love that honors others, runs countercultural to all the ways that the well-worn path of our culture is running. And this love... It serves the Lord with zeal and a spiritual fervor. I love seafood. I love salmon, tuna steak, shrimp, lobster, when somebody else pays, walleye. Uh, just Thursday night of this last week, I had some good tilapia, some grilled shrimp. I can honestly say to you that it's been a long, long time since I've eaten a tube of minced fish parts wrapped in breaded gluten goodness smothered in condiments. It's been a very long time since I've had fish sticks. Quite frankly, I have no desire to have any. And if I were to be honest with you, I've totally lost my appetite for that. You know why? Because I've tasted the real thing. I've tasted real seafood. I don't want fish sticks. 2,000 years ago, the Bible says Jesus showed up, and when he did, he came to show us what real, genuine, authentic love looked like. A love that isn't a fake-me-out kind of love, but a love that is true and real. And the Bible says that one night he was having dinner with his followers, and he took some bread, and he broke it, and he drank some wine, and he gave it for them to share 
And then he said this, I want you to do this on a regular basis because every time you eat the bread and break the bread and drink the cup, I want you to remember the real thing, the picture of what love, real love looks like. A love that satisfies, a love that is not packaged in a cultural substitute, smothered in goodness. A love that endured the evil of the cross so that we could cling to the goodness of grace. A love that showed up and demonstrated a rugged commitment so that we could belong to the family of God. A love that left his place of honor so that we could be honored to have a place with him. A love that displayed long obedience in the same direction because of his zeal. The joy that was set before him to see you and I become part of the kingdom of God. Love must be genuine. God, I pray. I pray that that kind of love would show up in our life, in our homes, in our small groups, God, in our youth ministry, in our children's ministry, in our church. God, our world longs to see it because it's eating fish sticks. And I pray that those of us who partake of the bread and the cup, those of us for whom the gospel has saturated, infected our lives, that we would so ingest the gospel that it would be the power for us to picture the real thing of what love really looks like. I love you. I know you love me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.